Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I'm your host, Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Dan. Hello everyone. Today's episode is all about the man, the myth, the legend, Christopher Columbus. We'll begin today's show by setting the stage, giving you some backstory and relevant information on the geopolitical landscape that shaped Columbus's adventures and his legacy. Then we'll analyze his life, evaluate the various takes on his impact, and dive into the modern-day controversies surrounding him. Was he a valiant genius who discovered two continents and paved the way for European civilization to tame barbarous new lands? Or was he an imperialistic, slave-trading, brutal conqueror who stamped out beautiful and peaceful civilizations? Finally, we'll delve into his lasting impact on history and ponder how the world would have been different without him. In order to understand why the Age of Discovery happened in the first place, and how Christopher Columbus got his chance to make history at all, we need to understand a little bit about the existing trade networks at the time, and the obstacles that forced European nations to innovate, explore, and incidentally, change history forever. As the Chinese under the Han Dynasty expanded westward through Asia in the 2nd century BC, pleasant interactions with locals and the discovery of untamed, resource-rich lands prompted the government to establish trade routes farther and farther out. Once the Chinese contacted the Parthian Empire, which occupied a significant region of the Middle East and northern India, they were able to establish a bridge to northern Africa, the Mediterranean, and maybe most importantly, the Roman Empire. And once the eastern and western worlds realized what the other had to offer in terms of trade, teas, dyes, porcelain, animals, gold, literature, scientific knowledge, and fine clothing, the Silk Road was born. Fun fact. In the early 500s AD, Emperor Justinian of the Byzantine Empire sent Christian monks across the Silk Road to China to steal silkworm eggs so they could make their own silk. But allegedly, it was never as high quality as the Chinese stuff. These trade routes survived for more than a millennium, despite the devastating effects of the Black Plague, constant warfare, and regime change along the routes, the development and spread of gunpowder, and even the disruptive expansion of the Mongol Empire in the 13th and 14th centuries. But, as the poet Robert Frost and Johnny from The Outsiders once said, nothing gold can stay, especially when the Ottoman Turks are involved. The Islamic conquests threw a monkey wrench into the whole operation, interrupting the flow of goods and forcing European monarchs to seek out alternative trade routes to circumvent the uncooperative and antagonistic Turks who had, just decades earlier, conquered the Byzantines, bringing a thousand-year-old nation to an end and putting pressure on all of Western Europe. Those were hard times. Hard times that would create strong men, one of whom would eventually discover the New World. Cristoforo Colombo was born in 1451 in the Republic of Genoa, modern-day northwestern Italy. His father, Domenico, was a Genoese wool worker and merchant. As a teenager, his sailing career began as a Portuguese merchant marine where he traded in the eastern Mediterranean. In 1476, he barely survived a confrontation with French pirates off the coast of Portugal, having to swim miles to shore in order to live another day. When he was in his mid-twenties, he moved to Portugal, where he and his brother sought employment as cartographers. However, this wasn't Christopher's only occupation. He was also an entrepreneur, and he sailed to Iceland, Ireland, and Madeira on commercial exploits during this time. In 1479, he married a woman named Felipa Perestrello, with whom he had one child, Diego. After Felipa died, Columbus fathered a child named Ferdinand with another woman out of wedlock. 
In the 1480s, Columbus gained a lot more sailing experience off the west coast of Africa and learned more about the Atlantic currents. Maybe some subtle foreshadowing. Europeans desired the fabled riches of China and India, such as spices, gold, and the aforementioned silk. But their way was thwarted by the Muslims who had occupied the Middle East, Anatolia, and Northern Africa. Let's remember how the great city of Constantinople fell in 1453, just two years after Columbus was born. This opened the door to Ottoman expansion in Europe, cutting off trade routes even more. Europeans wanted to cut out the Muslim middleman and trade directly with Asia. But how? The Age of Discovery, as we call it, was the time period in which European sailors discovered new lands. Portugal led the charge in the very beginning, with Prince Henry, the navigator, leading the first major expedition. They discovered the Azores Islands and Madeira, uninhabited islands in the Atlantic, but also made it down to Africa. Subsequent voyages made it further and farther down the African coast, establishing settlements and starting the African slave trade. The Portuguese, though, disappointed by the seemingly endless coastline, put all their investments into finding a route to Asia by going around Africa. In 1487, Bartolomeu Diaz finally found the Cape of Good Hope, proving for the first time that the Indian and Atlantic Oceans connected. Hard to believe that there was a time when people didn't know that. Nobody knew that before him. Columbus proposed that they sail west across the Atlantic to reach Asia. He disagreed with the experts of his day about the circumference of the Earth, positing that it was actually much smaller than many thought. From his calculations, Japan was only about 2,300 miles from the Canary Islands. In reality, that distance is about 12,200 miles. So the experts were correct, and he was wrong. We briefly touched on the issue of the Earth's circumference in our episode on conspiracy theories. Episode 23, check it out, you won't regret it. Let me briefly restate that Columbus was not a figure like Galileo, who stood against a regressive church and society to stand for scientific truth. Despite the myth, No educated European believed that the world was flat. Everybody since the ancient Greeks knew that the Earth was round. In fact, the ancient Greek Eratosthenes calculated the Earth's circumference to 1.5% of its actual value. Ptolemy and Aristotle both argued for a spherical Earth. Anyways, the Portuguese crown refused Columbus's offer to sail west because they believed their way was already proven and that his estimates were wildly off. Genoa and Venice also rejected him. Being so ambitious, though, Columbus petitioned the Spanish monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella with the same idea, but they were busy expelling the Muslims from Spain. However, they finally finished their Reconquista in 1492 and agreed to finance three ships and a crew for Columbus to make his voyage. The three ships were the Santa Maria, Pinta, and Nina, and they departed from Palos de la Frontera, an Atlantic coastal city somewhat close to the Portuguese border, in August of 1492. By the way, Columbus was present as the last Muslim stronghold of Grenada fell to the Spanish, and here's what he says in his journal. Quote, and I saw the Moorish king come out of the gates of the city and kiss the royal hands of your highnesses, and your highnesses as Catholic Christians took thought to send me, Christopher Columbus, to the said parts of India to see those princes and peoples and lands, and the manner which should be used to bring about their conversion to our holy faith and ordained that I should not go by land to the eastward, by which way it was custom to go, but by way of the west, by which down to this day we do not know certainly that any one has passed. Therefore, having driven out all the Jews from her realms and lordships in the same month of January, your highnesses commanded me that, with a sufficient fleet, I should go to the said parts of India, 
and for this accorded me great rewards and ennobled me so that from that time henceforth I might style myself Don and be high admiral of the ocean sea and viceroy and perpetual governor of the islands and continent which I should discover and that my eldest son should succeed to the same position and so on from generation to generation forever. Columbus used his navigational savvy to go for the Canary Islands southward instead of going straight westward. The currents and winds would take them from the Canary Islands west, and they would loop northward on the way home. On October 12th, after 36 days of sailing, Columbus and his crew arrived on an island in the modern-day Bahamas. We estimate that the distance from his stop in the Canary Islands to the island in the Bahamas was about 3,400 miles, so his crew must have been getting restless with his 2,300 miles to Asia claim. But hey, maybe they weren't that good at math. They were just sailors. And he also kept the distance they had traveled from them. Upon their arrival, the island's locals traded with them and were peaceful. Afterwards, they sailed on to Cuba and Hispaniola. As I'm sure you know, Hispaniola is the island which contains modern-day Haiti and Dominican Republic. Columbus thought that Cuba was China and that Hispaniola was Japan. They wrecked off the coast of Hispaniola and established their first settlement using the wreckage with the help of locals, naming it Via de la Navidad, or Christmas Town. Thirty-nine men stayed behind, while the rest of the fleet prepared to return home. On the way back to Spain, the fleet was engulfed by a terrible storm, forcing them to land on the Azores Islands, owned by Portugal. Columbus tried to gain local sympathies by leading a pilgrimage to their shrine to the Virgin Mary there but they were imprisoned. After preliminary interrogations, they were forced to sail to Lisbon, where they had to have a discussion with the Portuguese king, John II. Did Columbus spill the beans and collaborate with the Portuguese? We may never know. Columbus was ecstatic that he had found Asia, so he went back to Spain and gave an exaggerated account to a captive royal audience with a number of the locals to show off. His second voyage began in 1493 when Columbus was at the peak of his popularity. He led 17 ships and thousands of men this time, including friars, and he found Villa de la Navidad completely destroyed with the sailors massacred. It is unclear if the local Taino people or the warlike and cannibalistic Carib people were responsible. In any case, the landing party built fortifications and Columbus established a forced labor system for the locals in order to extract gold which they did find. But there was obviously a ton of animosity with the locals at this point. Still, he left his brothers Bartholomew and Diego in charge of the settlement and explored other islands in the Caribbean. His third voyage in 1498 was only financed because Spain needed their investment to pay out. On the way there, Columbus discovered compass variation. True North and Magnetic North were usually not exactly the same because the Magnetic North Pole is different from True North, and it has moved over time. He also made a fascinating discovery about the rotation of Polaris in the heavens, but we shouldn't go off on a tangent there. Just keep in mind that it was a huge discovery. This voyage brought him to the South American mainland, where he explored the Orinoco River and decided that a river of such size could only be found on a continent such as Asia. But ultimately, he was forced away from that due to drama elsewhere. Via de la Navidad was almost to the breaking point because the inhabitants didn't like the poor management of the brothers, and they weren't getting as rich as they thought they would. It is hard to determine who was at fault, but it was probably a combination of greedy Spaniards, corrupt management, and angry natives. When Columbus arrived and sorted everything out, he hanged the key members of the rebellion, 
In response, the Spanish crown sent an official to arrest Columbus. He was stripped of his titles and authority and returned to Spain in chains. He wrote a desperate and impassioned letter to the monarchs, which helped lead to his later acquittal. However, he lost his prestige and wealth due to the incident. His fourth and final voyage was only organized because Columbus promised that this time it would be different. This time he would be able to bring home the bacon with all that wealth he would definitely find. Before his departure, he wrote about his family's rightful claims, apocalyptic prophecies, and other letters. The crown appointed a more capable governor this time and sent the excellent navigator on his way. In 1502, he went along the coast of Central America, unsuccessfully trying to find a route to the Indian Ocean. They crashed in Cuba, but the locals refused to help them due to the previous treatment they had received from the Spanish. However, Columbus proved his ingenuity by consulting an almanac, and this is really one of my favorite stories here. He saw that a lunar eclipse was coming, so he punished the islanders by threatening to take away the moon on a certain date. It worked and the locals gave them food, probably thinking that they were dealing with real-life gods. A Spanish rescue party came and got them back to Spain. Columbus only lived two more years, and he spent most of it trying to get his titles and riches back. He never received his titles, and he only got some of his riches back. On May 20th, 1506, Columbus died of severe arthritis at the age of 54. He died disappointed and deluded into thinking that he had found his promised route to Asia. Columbus's claim that he had found a route to Asia was doubted by many contemporaries. Therefore, in 1497, the Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama sailed away on an expedition that would found a colony in Calicut, India, but this particular settlement only lasted until 1525. In 1500, another expedition accidentally discovered Brazil and claimed it for Portugal. Let me say there is and has been a big conspiracy theory that Columbus spilled the beans on where he had been to the Portuguese, and that's why they accidentally found oh, so Brazil. Oh, so tipped them off and they quote-unquote accidentally, not yeah. so accidentally, discovered it. Diaz recommended that they go uh, southwest to avoid some currents off the coast of Africa, and but how do you go that far southwest to hit like a whole new continent because Dang, they're not been going southwest for a really long time you know? i mean they're going like they're like halfway to japan at this point you know with the amount of mileage they they would have had to hit to hit brazil yeah. accidentally i mean what is that from where they would have departed maybe five six thousand miles something like that i it's suspicious and i i think they might have no known ahead of time in 1511 a portuguese base was established in malacca in modern day malaysia opening up trade to china In 1557, they established a port in Macau, China. In the end, it was the Portuguese who destroyed the Muslim and Venetian monopoly on Asian trade, not Columbus. According to the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, Portugal would have rights to Brazil, the islands in the Atlantic, and Africa, while Spain would have the rest of the New World. Of course, it didn't work out so neatly, but that basic arrangement stood firm until other European powers started to eat away at the Americas and Africa. And briefly, let me say that's another point as to why people think that Columbus spilled the beans after his first voyage, because Treaty of Tordesillas was in 1494, and the way they did it, it was X number of miles west of the Canary Islands was the line. And it's almost like they knew that there was something there they could claim in the Americas. Oh, so they you're thinking that, well, the conspiracy theorists maybe are thinking that they had some some knowledge or some suspicions enough suspicions to think that there would be land that they could claim and they were Otherwise, taking advantage of the of the unknowing otherwise why would people. they say 
so many thousand miles to the west if they if the furthest they had discovered was like the Azores Islands, which are pretty close to mainland Europe. Oddly specific. Yeah, to, and it cuts into Brazil, I'm pretty sure. Between 1519 and 1521, the Spaniard Hernan Cortes contacted and conquered the Aztec Empire centered in Tenochtitlan, or modern-day Mexico City. Between 1530 and 1572, the Spaniard Francisco Pizarro contacted and conquered the Incan Empire in modern-day Peru. The defeat of those two empires would open up the Americas to large-scale colonization efforts in the following centuries, though the native tribes in North America would offer major resistance well into the 1900s. Check out Episode 9, Epic Last Stands, for more on that topic. There's a reason we call the aftermath of Columbus's discoveries the Columbian Exchange. The Europeans gave the New World horses, wheat, coffee, firearms, and numerous Old World diseases. The Americans gave the Old World potatoes, tomatoes, corn, and a fewer number of diseases. Since the Americans had no exposure to the germs of the Old World, they were quickly overrun, especially by smallpox, measles, and influenza. Some estimates say that 90% of Native Americans died of disease, going from 60 million to a mere 6 million within decades of contact. This, more than any other factor, allowed Europeans to colonize the Americas. In fact, a scientific study in 2019 posited that so many people died then that the global temperature went down 0.15 degrees Celsius. Now, was that because of people, fewer people just breathing warm air or yeah, because and, of fewer fires? Or? And fewer farms. Hmm. Interesting. Of, and they weren't even burning fossil fuels or anything and just killing off like 56 million people. Wow. That's, wow, wow, wow. You know, you know how it is with scientific studies and quotation marks, so it's probably BS like the rest of them, but, you know, I thought it was interesting. Some of the deaths were from violence, but it would have been impossible for pre-industrial societies to kill at such high rates. Before long, African slaves were being brought to, to the New World to replace the natives, and gold flowed back to Europe. Perhaps as divine justice, depending on your perspective, the sheer quantity of gold that came to Spain depreciated the currency so bad that it tanked the economy for a century. Europeans of many nationalities flooded the New World, and all the countries we have in the Americas today are highly influenced, are actually created by Europeans. As we mentioned, this massive depopulation combined with military engagements destroyed the major empires of Central and South America, along with many of their societal norms. An obvious effect of this was the end of human sacrifice. All major civilizations in Central and South America practiced some form of human sacrifice to appease or please the gods, including the Maya and the Inca. But the Aztecs in Mexico were especially well known for it. They killed at least tens of thousands of people annually, arguably hundreds of thousands, in years with natural disasters, deaths of emperors, and special religious events. This goes hand in hand with the expansion of Catholic Christianity at the expense of paganism. Once the Spanish conquered the Aztecs and stopped the sacrifices, the natives realized that the sun still rose every day, and natural disasters didn't sweep the land as a result. This was probably the low point of the Mexica people. In 1531, an indigenous peasant named Juan Diego encountered an apparition of Mary with indigenous features on multiple occasions. We won't recount the whole story here, but basically he convinced the bishop to build a shrine to Our Lady of Guadalupe, and a miraculous imprint of the Virgin Mary appeared on his tilma. If you go to Mexico City today, you can go to this shrine and see the tilma, which remains in excellent condition. 
After this, the conversion of the natives to Catholicism was quick, though syncretism with paganism remains to this day. The mixing of Spaniards or Portuguese and natives produced a unique culture that we call Latin America today. All the countries in Central and South America are considered Latin America, and its people are called Latino or Latina. And let us be clear, the Sons of Antiquity podcast does not use the term Latinx or Latinx. No Latinos refer to themselves as Latinx. It is an attempt by the Anglos to force their PC nonsense on others. Latin American culture is characterized by institutionalized Roman Catholicism, vibrant song and dance, Spanish and Portuguese cuisine mixed with corn and tomato products, and traditional values, though the religion and culture are fast becoming like the West, sadly. It is remarkable how many places are named after Columbus. When the United States broke away from the British, its founders seriously considered naming the new country Columbia. Our capital is Washington, D.C., which stands for District of Columbia. The Canadian province of British Columbia and the South American country of Colombia stand out as other major examples. Besides these, three international cities, 18 American cities, two American state capitals, and seven American counties are named after the legend. Now, as a quick side note, America is named after Amerigo Vespucci, an Italian explorer who sailed to the New World from 1501 to 1502 to map the region which he suspected was part of a new continent, which was unconfirmed at the time. Spoiler alert, he was right, and when he got back to Europe, he took his notes to a French cartographer who compiled them into a partial map in 1507, and on the map, he labeled the new region America, and the name stuck. One final impact of Columbus's discovery was the founding of the Knights of Columbus in the late 1800s, and Dan, you know I'm going to mention it. It was instituted by a Catholic priest named Venerable Michael McGivney in order to help the immigrant communities support each other in America when society at large didn't want them there. Today, they are an international Catholic fraternal organization that makes a huge impact both near and far. Evan is a proud member and soon-to-be Deputy Grand Knight. So you're a frat boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, I'm in a frat. Let me quote here from a 2015 article by the National Review to summarize the two narratives that surround Columbus and his legacy. First, the conservative and traditional view. Quote, Born to a working-class wool weaver in the port city of Genoa, Italy, Cristoforo Colombo apprenticed as a sailor and went to sea as early as age 10, a self-taught and curious man. Colombo lived by his wits and rose in the heady world of 15th century sea traders until he hit upon an ingenious idea. He would outflank the Mohammedan Turks and reach the East Indies by sailing west across the ocean sea. After weathering nearly a decade of rejection and failure, in 1492, Colombo won the support of the Spanish crown and set off on an uncertain journey that inadvertently opened a new world, laying the foundation for that most glittering daughter of the Western heritage, America. End quote. Second, the progressive and critical view. Quote, Christopher Columbus, a dead white male of the worst variety, was a slaver, a capitalist, and a murder of millions who embarked on a voyage motivated only by greed, which brought European imperialism to the shores of the, quote, New World, and laid waste the ancient indigenous peoples there. Columbus deserves little credit. Leif Erikson had, quote, discovered the, quote, new continent 500 years earlier, and much blame for the horrors of the Columbian Exchange, the vast transfer of people, animals, and plants between the Western and Eastern hemispheres. In his wake, 
the quote, new world suffered smallpox, starvation, the cruel subjugation of the indigenous peoples, and the establishment of that most dastardly spawn of the West, America. The shifting prevalent view of Columbus is shocking. While he was a great hero in the 19th century for pioneering progress, prosperity, and enlightenment, he is quickly becoming a great villain in the 21st century for oppression and racism, slavery, rape, theft, vandalism, extermination, and ecological desolation. Many Columbus statues have been torn down and vandalized, much like the Confederate statues and monuments to our founding fathers. Columbus arrived in America on October 12, 1492, but in the United States, Columbus Day is a national holiday on the second Monday of October. Columbus Day was established as a federal holiday in 1892 under President Benjamin Harrison after a mob in Louisiana lynched a bunch of Italians. Teddy Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan both praised the man. And if you're a millennial or older, you probably remember Columbus Day being a day off from work and school. We sure do, along with Washington and Lincoln's birthdays. Now it's just President's Day combined into one. Yeah, lame. If you don't know, the word holiday comes from the phrase holy day. So when a culture removes holidays, it is showing a real shift in values and identity. For many years, Columbus Day has been swept aside and people have not been off of work or school. Further, it has gone from a non-holiday to a day of mourning for many. Many on the left have renamed Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day to further spit in Columbus's face. Let's dive deeper into the pro-Columbus perspective, and then I promise we'll get to the anti-Columbus perspective after that. The defense of Columbus breaks down into multiple categories, namely historical inaccuracies, the end results of his discovery, his lack of involvement in less savory activities, the errors of historical revisionism from a modern perspective, and Columbus's personal qualities. Contrary to popular belief, the natives Columbus encountered did not live in an idyllic and peaceful utopia. Like we mentioned, the Carib people were known for their savagery and cannibalism. In fact, the very word cannibal comes from the Spanish name for the Caribs. The Spanish monarchy forbade slavery except in cases of cannibals. It is unclear whether he enslaved the more peaceful Taino or the brutal Carib, but it is pretty likely that most Spaniards grouped them all together and treated them as cannibals. The Spanish were oftentimes cruel to the natives, but we need to consider the bigger picture. What was going on in the New World? Columbus encountered cannibals in the Caribbean, but on the mainland, the barbarism knew no bounds. Human sacrifice was a feature of all Mesoamerican cultures. The supposedly cruel Spaniards outlawed these mass sacrifices. They brought Christianity and Christian values to the pagans. Beyond Evans' perspective, that they brought eternal salvation to a lost people, they forced the natives to have a better chance of living in a civilized society. Let us also consider all the things that went between the two worlds, which we mentioned before. This transfer, besides the diseases, improved the quality of life for both worlds. Impoverished and ambitious Europeans were given the opportunity to get a fresh start on life. Finally, let's consider the elephant in the room. The United States of America. Without Columbus, the USA would not have come about. That's just point blank. Though America kind of sucks now, sure. It was once a great country. When you consider the international evils of the colonizers against all the goods that came as a result of said colonization, most people would see it as a net gain. A lot of the atrocities committed by the early Spanish colonizers were not Columbus's fault. Once he left Hispaniola after his first voyage, the Spaniards treated the locals cruelly, causing their slaughter. The Spaniards treated the locals cruelly, causing their own downfall. This happened over and over again. 
Columbus was a poor governor and could not control his own people or the natives. The Spanish treated the natives harshly from the second voyage onward, enslaving them and forcing them to mine for gold. Slavery has existed everywhere since the beginning of time, and Columbus didn't invent it. But the extent of Columbus's involvement in that is questionable. He probably had pious intentions, but those who came with him were usually unscrupulous treasure seekers. Who would risk so much to go across an ocean to islands filled with savages, except for those with little to lose and a dragon heart? Additionally, those who blame the Europeans for the diseases they brought are really stretching the truth. The germ theory is very modern, and they weren't intentionally sneezing on the natives in order to kill them. It was a purely accidental occurrence. To the Spaniards, it surely seemed like God was striking down the pagans for them. Historical revisionism is good to an extent, but when taken too far and mixed with modern sensibilities, progressive sensibilities, it is a terrible way to view history. Under the critical school, everybody who lived prior to the 21st century should be viewed as an extremely problematic dude. These are the kinds of things they'll say. Lincoln freed the slaves, but only to preserve the Union. He was a white supremacist. Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence and helped the average farmer, but he owned slaves and raped one of them. We could go on and on, but there's not a single person who made a difference in the world who didn't have flaws besides Jesus and Mary. Everyone makes mistakes and fights their own personal battles. When critical theory is applied to American history, our supposed heroes will inevitably turn into villains for not being perfect progressives from the modern point of view. And let me just say, critical theory, especially around Columbus, it comes from a communist background. I believe Far it. left, far left. The guy who wrote, he wrote a book called The People's History of the United States. It, it was a very popular book back, I think, in the 70s and 80s. It portrays every great American as a bigot in some way and a terrible person. And that's where we get a lot of our modern stereotypes about the Founding Fathers and Columbus and all those. Well, it certainly fits the bill. I mean, that sounds like what you're taught in school, in these uh, little uh, Marxist training camps. And this man who wrote it, I, I forget his name right now, but he actually had ties to communism. There was a huge file on him in the FBI. Oh, really? Yeah. Watch the Knights of Columbus documentary. I, I link in the description and you'll get a good perspective, I think. In the words of Evan, you will be shocked. <laughs> Anyways, when the statues come down, who will our heroes be? The people who tore down the statues until they themselves will be overthrown by an even more woke generation. If we don't have heroes, we don't have history, and we don't have purpose. And that's a dangerous place to be. Most historians don't doubt that Columbus was a sincerely religious man. And despite his obstinate belief that he had found Asia, he was an exceptional navigator. This much cannot be doubted. However, a reading of Columbus's life leads one to believe that he should have stayed in his boat. As a governor and administrator, he was incapable, constantly switching between indulgence and cruelty, unable to control his subjects. With that being said, the negative analysis of Columbus breaks down into these categories. His cruelty, his inaccurate claims, and the effects of his discovery. According to the progressive narrative, Columbus was a slave trader, a tyrant, an imperialist, a war criminal, and a corrupt governor. There is truth to all of these claims. Though he didn't invent slavery, as it already existed in the Americas, he did enslave the natives in Hispaniola, and probably didn't discriminate between Taino and Carib peoples. He violated the laws of the Spanish crown and common morality by enslaving innocent people for the purposes of mining gold. He turned to cruelty when his subjects became unruly, using executions to keep the descent down. 
It was for this reason that even the Spanish crown arrested him. He was only pardoned because of his personal relationship with the sovereigns and his promises of future wealth. Even after his pardon, another man replaced him as governor, and he wasn't even allowed to visit Hispaniola again. He ended up visiting, but it was in an emergency. Columbus represented the worst of the white man, the European colonialist, and his actions proved the stereotype we hold today. He used his religion as a bludgeon and considered himself to be a crusader for Christ. He loved the Crusades and thought that all of the Holy Land would be converted to Christianity, commencing the end times. He enslaved, tortured, and killed the natives for private gain. Let's be honest, many of Columbus's claims were downright wrong, sure. His estimate of the Earth's circumference was laughably off, and the experts of his time knew it. Ferdinand and Isabella were the only ones who were fooled. Can you imagine how difficult the journey to Japan would have been if the Americas hadn't existed, if it was just water? By playing around with Google Maps, we estimate that it would have been about 12,000 miles across a vast ocean with current and storms to get from the Canary Islands to Tokyo, Japan. No wonder no one wanted to fund this. It sounds like a suicide mission. Besides this, he obstinately believed that he found the prized route to Asia for the rest of his life, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary. Even many of his own crewmates didn't buy it. He also had a tendency to exaggerate his triumphs and downplay his failures. He did not discover America. Don't you know that Leif Erikson came to America hundreds of years before Columbus? Also, there were tens of millions of people already living there. Columbus opened the door to a litany of evils. 90% of the natives died, as we said, when he showed up because of disease. Almost all of the rest of the Caribbean peoples were killed off by maltreatment and violence. Today, there are very few native Caribbean people. Many have called the European destruction of the native peoples a genocide. So many of them died that Europeans had to start bringing African slaves over to work their fields. The African slave trade moved at least 12 million African people of color to the Americas, not including the millions who died en route or shortly after arriving. They were stolen from their families and forced into dehumanizing and morbid conditions for the sake of profit, continuing the legacy of Columbus. Many of the evils perpetrated against BIPOC in America are directly a result of Columbus and his imperialist successors. With all that being said, it is no wonder that he died in disgrace and poverty. Even his own sponsors were horrified by what he unleashed. Thus concludes the negative view of Columbus, which is prevalent today. What are our own opinions? What connections do we have to the issue? Let's discuss. I'm glad you asked. Both Dan and I have Spanish background. Dan is of the more European variety, if you know what I mean. More <laughs> yeah, of a yeah, white boy it. summer than I am. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> but I have a grandmother who is from Central America. From DNA testing, I have determined that she is about half Spanish, half native, and a little bit Northern African. The North African likely comes from the Reconquista years, where some Muslim raped one of my ancestors. A real possibility. Or from intermarriage between a European and a Morisco or a Muslim forced to convert to Catholicism after the Reconquista finished. Yes, I am part Muslim and part native, two groups I regularly criticize. Dan, what is your opinion on Columbus? Oh, I've got some hot takes on this for sure. First, let's talk about the quote-unquote genocide of the native peoples in the New World. There was no possible way that the peoples of Europe or Asia or Africa could have interacted with the totally isolated Native Americans without killing millions of them with disease. It was truly inevitable. The Old World had already shared most, if not all, the same germs with each other and survived the Black Plague, building a giga-chad immune system along the way. 
the natives never really stood a chance, if you think about it. It's not the fault of Europeans specifically. Nobody understood microbiology, so the diseases would have spread intentionally or not, regardless of which race of people arrived in the Americas first. And if you're still upset about the high death toll from disease, remember that one-third of Europeans died from the Black Plague, and millions more died in other regions. They're not the only ones to die from disease en masse. They were just unlucky enough to be the last. Second, let's consider what would have happened if Europeans had been progressive liberals and had decided to leave the natives alone. Once word got out that two new continents full of resources and weak natives were out there, how long before the Chinese crossed the Pacific to colonize the Americas, kill them with germs, and massacre and enslave the rest? What about the Turks? Eventually, they would have made it over there somehow, some way. And what if every group of people had just decided to be nice and let the natives live? Without an incentive to leave the continent and without smaller bodies of water to practice shipbuilding on, like the Mediterranean Sea, the natives probably never would have built ocean-faring vessels even if they were given thousands more years of isolation. And if they somehow did, they'd get the diseases when they got here, and the ones that survived would then take it back home, and the same outcome would happen as before. It was just what was going to happen. End of story. Third, the Europeans may have facilitated the Colombian exchange and the slave trade, but they also ended it shortly thereafter. The same cannot be said of the Muslim world. Many parts of Africa and many parts of Asia where slavery still exists, it's very real, and it has been for over a thousand years, in many cases. Slavery existed everywhere at every time in history. So all things being equal, Europeans have done way more to end slavery than any other group. And by conquering the Aztecs, they brought an end to the ritual sacrifice and the mutilation of men, women, and children. We mentioned that earlier. And they introduced Christianity to the locals instead. And that's what the kids call a glow-up. Lastly, and then I'll get off my soapbox, Columbus was a human. Not a god. Although I, I did really like his, uh, his clever lunar eclipse trick. That is awesome. The man was not perfect, but his accomplishments and his achievements made a positive impact on Western history and world history. Changed my mind. In my younger days, I was a passionate opponent of Columbus. <gasps> I called him all the things progressives call him today. Why was I like this? First, I blame public education. It was starting to get woke about colonialism back when we were in school, so Columbus was not glorified. And if you tell a kid all the bad things someone did, they want justice, naturally. They are not good at having a nuanced view of someone or analyzing the good that comes from evil. Second, I blame libertarianism, which I claimed as my own creed when I was 16 years old. Libertarians get to be social justice warriors about the past and spout off all the wrongs of governmental figures that most people look up to. It's subversive to tell people that Martin Luther King Jr. had dozens of affairs and plagiarized, or that Lincoln was a white supremacist. It has the effect of making people trust the government and the greats of American history less. I didn't realize until I was older that I was using the tactics of the left to destabilize society. It's easy to tear something down, but once everything's burned to the ground, what will you build in its place? It's hard to build anything when other people destroy the work of others as their own sick hobby. So it is with Columbus. He was a flawed man who unleashed a lot of evil. He was a sincerely religious man with an exceptional ability to navigate the seas, and much of the evil was unintentional on his part. But we must not take all the good that came from Europe for granted. There wasn't much goodness happening in the Americas before he showed up. There was rampant savagery, cruel and primitive religions, very, very low levels of development and invention, and a lack of philosophical contemplation. Nobody even had the wheel. Catholic civilization is superior to the barbarous places they found in the Americas. 
when we celebrate Columbus Day, we are not intending to celebrate the man Christopher Columbus. And this is what makes it different from Martin Luther King Day, which celebrates and worships one man. Columbus Day is not all about Columbus. It includes Columbus, it's named after him, but it's really more Discovery Day, which is what most countries name the holiday, by the way. So it's not about Columbus, it is about celebrating the first encounter of the West with the New World. Without said encounter, we wouldn't even be here in the country. We owe a lot to the man who discovered this great land. Let us not forget. Now it's time for the takeaways. Ironically, the Age of Discovery never would have happened the way it did without the Ottoman Turks causing so much trouble. So, thanks? Christopher Columbus may have had the wrong idea about the Earth's size and geography, but he was still an exceptional navigator and a pioneer in his own right. The fate of the natives was sealed from the start. It doesn't excuse any atrocities committed during the exploration or colonization, and believe us, there were a lot. But we have to accept that the old world was already way too advanced to change the outcome of the interactions they would have with the natives. It is a shame that Columbus's life ended the way it did. He deserved better. Wokeness spoils everything, especially the memory of great heroes and a nuanced view of history. Now for our lingering questions. Will Columbus Day stop being a federal holiday in America? There's only about a dozen of them. Will public celebrations of it cease? I think we're already on that trajectory, so yeah, probably. I think that's a, a pretty safe bet. And, you know, to me, correct me if, if I'm wrong here or if you think differently, uh, but it seems like we're moving more towards a, a just a working state, a, a state where just every there are very few holidays and everybody's expected to just be at work and be at school as often as they can get away with. You know, like corporate America is literally milking everybody for every ounce that they have and not allowing people to just be and have days off. What do you think? Some of my loved ones, they last year, they got Juneteenth off, but they did not get July 4th or Thanksgiving or New Year's. Really? They, they must work in retail. Uh, I'm not going to say. But <laughs> I, I, too, see eventually it's not going to be enough to just, you know, not let people off of work for Columbus Day, which, I mean, that is been decade that's been over a decade where we can expect to get off for columbus day i can't remember the last time i got off for it no it's been a long time but it's not going to be enough just like it, it wasn't enough it wasn't enough just to leave columbus day alone and stop celebrating it now it has to be indigenous people's day to spit in his face further so you think that it'll be a flip like we we had it off now we don't have it off but now we'll rename it and then we'll get that day off i don't think we'll get it off i just think they're gonna there's going to be a movement stop Columbus Day, and then they're going to they're going to get rid of it as a federal holiday, mm -hmm. and they'll just erase it. Basically, yeah. I agree. Why is Portugal so often overlooked in history? Good question. I'm glad you asked. I think Portugal is unfairly overlooked. They started this whole process. I mean, they started the slave trade too. So say what you will, but yikes! <laughs> Can't take the good without the bad, as I always say. They, I mean. When the Spaniards were trying to just get a foothold in the new world that they thought was China, you know, the Spaniards were already in India. You know, they had their own settlements. I mean, in the mid-1500s, they were already, they already had their own place to call home in China. You know, they went the long, well, turns out they actually went a shorter way than having to go around the Americas. But, you know, they went their way and they were so prosperous. In fact, it wasn't until way after the other countries were getting rid of their colonies. Uh, in the 1970s that Portugal got rid of all 
most of its colonies. And it only did so after a revolution. Wow. Well, it was a peaceful coup. But still, that brings me to my second point. Maybe a little bit of a spoiler. Something I want to do that it'll probably be a ways in the future and I'll have to convince Daniel. I would like to do another biography of a less famous Portuguese man who I think is severely underrated. And he's uh, he's from a modern time, yet his methods were a little bit older school. Not, <laughs> not the post-liberal society we live in. You know what? I think I've got an idea who this might be, and I'm down. Yeah, Portugal deserves more attention. So maybe if we run out of ideas in the future, we can just start talking about Portugal. Sons of Portugal. <laughs> Will the Knights of Columbus ever change their name? And you should probably be asking me this question, but what do you think? Well, feel free to talk as much or as little as you want, because I know that the Knights of Columbus are a pretty secretive group here. But you have mentioned in passing that they have changed some things over the years and even maybe changed some things procedurally in like just within the last year or two. So I think seeing that it it troubles me. It worries me that maybe they will abandon that name eventually, maybe not as quickly as everyone else, but it may happen. Uh, But you're a man on the inside. What can you tell us about it? I have the same fears, although for now they are releasing videos saying how great Columbus was and how he's misunderstood. See the link in the description. It's on YouTube. It's a good 30-minute video on it. I do fear eventually they will not be able to resist the mob culture, much like the Boy Scouts couldn't, which I was also a part of. Ooh, good pull and good good comparison there. First it was, uh, you know, they were forced by law and like lawsuits basically to allow homosexuals into Boy Scouts. And then there, I mean, not not as a result of that, but ongoing, there were all the lawsuits about sexually assaulting children, like probably even more than like teachers. So you think it, it's inevitable? Yeah, I think eventually when they get desperate enough, like if, if the cash flow starts hurting like it was for the Boy Scouts, they'll start changing the name, let women in eventually. At like, what point? like the Boy Scouts also let girls in at the end, and then I think they're bankrupt now. So, so get what go broke, as the saying goes. At what point would you call it quits? At what point is it no longer the Knights of Columbus to you? Allowing women in. If they change the name, I would be pissed. But if they change it to like some saint name or something, I would just be angry on principle. But I wouldn't leave if they changed the name. But they would hear my voice. I ought to say that. The Zs of Columbus. The Zers of Columbus. <laughs> and for our last lingering question. Maybe the most important in this whole show. Did Columbus really shout, It's Morbin time! on his second voyage? The world may never know. That's all for today's show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments. We will respond if you're not a schizo. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom. 